Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this week's show on Friday, October 29th, which is two days before Halloween. It's also Nancy's birthday. As soon as we get done here, Drew, I am baking her a cake. It's a triple chocolate fudge with buttercream icing. Won't be the prettiest cake. The baked goods that I make typically... Let's just say if you saw them in the street, you'd step over them, but eh, they taste pretty good. So this is a cake that you can't eat because you're diabetic. (laughs) There is also that aspect, yes. (laughs) Nancy has a slice of the cake, and then I have to basically drop it into Tupperware containers, and I run it to her sister down in Pepperell, Massachusetts, and she has nieces and nephews around the area, and and I may even take one to my mom. But yeah, it's it's a look-but-don't-eat cake. Right. This is what's so pathetic about when you've been together. Nancy and I have been together 24 years at this point, and she likes to say she turned 39. This is... I want to say the 25th time she's turned 39. But you run out of things to give at that point. I mean, I I literally am reduced to giving her for her birthday a llama planter. But she loves llamas, so it it works out. So (laughs) how long have you and Katie been together? We have not been together 24 years. Mm -hmm. I think we got together in 2016, Mm -hmm. I want to say. So, yeah. Five years. You're getting a little taste of it. Add another 20. It gets interesting. (laughs) Okay, while we're recording this edition of Fine Tuning on Friday, October 29th, the podcast will actually go live on Tuesday, November 2nd, which is the 20th anniversary of Pixar's Monsters, Inc. That's when it arrived in theaters, and I thought that Drew and I might talk about that in the second half of today's show, but that will follow the news. News portion of this week's show is brought to you by Storybook Destination, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. So looking back at the week in the news for animation, hands down, the big story of the week has to be the teaser trailer for Lightyear, don't you think? Yes. I mean, this dominated the Twitter conversation for the entire week, I feel like, even though it's only been out for a couple of days. So yeah, I mean, it, it, <laughs> don't it, ask me how that happened, Jim, but it just did. Uh, yeah. Well, it, yeah, you're right. It came out on Wednesday. In fact, given the way the Disney PR machine worked, we're sitting here, and I want to say it was the last half hour of Good Morning America, and suddenly here's Chris Evans introducing the Lightyear trailer there, and then from there, I guess it got pushed out online at nine o'clock and that's when the conversation started yeah i think it also played last night on the abc premiere of toy story 4 that's right that's right in fact i was watching a little bit of that last night as well mm-hmm. i appreciated that they kept it widescreen <laughs> uh there was no there was no cropping on my my beloved toy story 4 on abc it looked great okay so just to review here we talked on the last week's show about turning red which is the Pixar film that's going to precede Lightyear into theaters. That comes out in March, and Lightyear uh, comes out in June. Do you want to talk about why Lightyear kind of blew up online? Or Yeah, because people are, people are very confused about what Lightyear is, mm-hmm. which I don't really understand, because I think that Pete Doctor made it pretty clear at the mm-hmm. Investor's Day last year, but... People are saying, since the animation was so photoreal, is this sort of like an alternate history version of the Toy Story universe where Andy is living? Because, Mm -hmm. as we know in Toy Story 2, uh, Stinky Pete said, when the rockets went up, nobody wanted to play with 
cowboy toys, which is also kind of a weird jump in the timeline because Buzz Lightyear appears to be new in 1995. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it's sort of the movie that inspired the toy. And I have even found a way to explain Buzz Lightyear of Star Command Mm -hmm. in that whole thing, too. So... um, yeah, well, I, I, I guess we should also mention you. Do, I did a wonderful piece for rap, like commenting on the fact that you know people online were came across as confused. It's like this is a new Toy Story movie, and it's a teaser trailer eight months out. It did what it was supposed to do. We we're all talking about this movie that is coming out in, in eight months, and there's the poster of the spacesuit that yep. the Buzz character eventually wears, which is reminiscent of what the toy is in. Did you think it was interesting that, was it the day of or the, the very next day where Chris Evans himself came online to try to, all right, let me explain what you looked, just saw. Well, I mean, it's sort of his fault to begin with because he said it's based on the real life man that inspired Buzz Lightyear. Mm-hmm. That was back in December of last year, the same night as the Investor's Day announcement. So. Okay. I think he he was the he was both arsonist and firefighter on that one. Um, so that's a great, yeah, that's a great description. Okay, <laughs> you touched on Buzz Lightyear of Star Command and how you can sort of kind of make this work. We first got introduced to that as a direct-to-video title, right? That that came out in August of two thousand, and then there was the Buzz Lightyear animated series, which Disney sold to UPN, which I thought was interesting, but it also showed up that very same fall as part of the one Saturday morning lineup on ABC. But what I always found fascinating about that show was it was created by Bob Scully and Mark McCorkle, who the very next time they did something for Disney, that turned out to be Kim Possible, which hit like two years later and was such a huge success. And in the tradition of DreamWorks, because they created Kim Possible, this big success, Jeffrey went calling. And they then went to work for uh, DreamWorks Television Animation. And they did the Monsters vs. Aliens series, Penguins of Madagascar series, and All Hail King Julian. Just recently, Scully and McCorkle returned to the Mouse House and wound up writing Hurt on Big Hero 6, the series, for Disney XD and, and Disney Channel. And that show ran for three seasons, 66 episodes, just wrapped up in February of this year. Buzz Lightyear of Star Command was a show that was produced in that window of time when Disney owned outright whatever Pixar made. So they didn't really have to consult with Pixar when they were doing things like this. Yes, although they did produce the wraparound segments for the movie they version did. of the first They did, episodes. you know, the, the, yeah. the direct video. But did you hear that John Lasseter supposedly hated Buzz Lightyear of Star Command? No. I mean, listen... If we did a news segment on everything that John Laster hated, Jim, we would be here <laughs> for a while. Lilo and Stitch. I mean, uh, yeah. Okay. There's kind of a point there. Okay. <laughs> so you're referencing the, the Investors Conference, and Pete Doctor talked about what Lightyear will be. Is the summer blockbuster. Supposedly inspired all the Buzz Lightyear toys. In fact, that's the reason supposedly Andy and all of the other boys at his birthday party are so excited when he opens the Buzz Lightyear toy because they've all seen the movie too. That's why they think this is so cool. Yes. Although I have an I have a way of folding in the Buzz Lightyear TV show. Please, please do so. Which is that 
as Ghostbusters begat the real Ghostbusters, Mm -hmm. so did Lightyear beget Buzz Lightyear of Star Command. And maybe the toy is actually based on the show and not the movie, just because the art style is so similar. But there you go. That's my that's my uh, wow way of that's my unified Lightyear theory. Okay, let's watch that bounce around online later today. (laughs) What do we think of our selection of a director on this thing, Angus McLean? I mean, I think he's great. He's been with he's been with Pixar forever. Oh yeah, and yeah. he's done two of my favorite non-movie Toy Story things, mm-hmm. which is Small Fry, which mm-hmm. expanded the universe a little bit, and Toy Story of Terror, which I hope that you have watched this year, Jim, to get into the Halloween spirit. To give Angus credit, I mean. How long had the franchise existed at that point? And he was the guy who was able to bend things back to combat Carl. Yes. In fact, didn't he get Carl Weathers to do the voice of that? Yeah. Yeah. And now Carl and Carl Weathers was, was in Toy Story 4, so he's he's added a lot. And also Little Buzz from Small Fry, I think, is one of the funniest <laughs> Toy Story characters ever. They were able to introduce the element of delusion again, which had been so much fun out of the, the, the very first Toy Story movie. Angus has been at Pixar forever. In fact, was his first credit Jerry's Game? Oh, it might have been, yeah. Okay. But he's also done sci-fi. He worked on Wally. Not only worked on Wally, he directed the short that went out. Bernie. There we go, the, the, with the Blu-ray and the DVD, November of 2008. Yeah. I liked what I saw of the trailer. It looked like it had the right look. It looked like it had the right feel. Though what was interesting, a lot of Star Trek fans out there we're pointing out the homage to Star Trek for the Voyage Home, the flight around the sun. There's a lot of references. There's already. a lot of references. The, yeah. the cat is very clearly a reference to Ridley's Ripley's cat in Alien, although this cat's name is Socks, S-O-X, <laughs> and it's a little robot. Okay. Which it's very interesting. We've got a lot of we've had a lot of Pixar cats lately, although we did have Doug Days, so we had we had some Pixar dogs there, but. Um, yeah, I cannot wait. I thought the trailer was absolutely astounding, so yeah, no, I'm, no. I'm ready for it. Okay. We were just talking about Robert Scully and Mark McCorkle, who did Kim Possible and Big Hero 6, the series for Disney television animation. But you know what other team has done a crazy amount of work for the Mouse House? That's Bill Motts and Bob Roth. Their Disney resumes run all the way back to the early 1990s when Bill and Bob wrote episodes of the original Darkwing Duck, but... After that, geez, it's easier to talk about what Mott's and Roth didn't write for Disney television animation. I mean, they're the, the writers listed on a bunch of home premieres. I mean, things like uh, Return to Jafar, Between the Beast, Enchanted Christmas, Lion King 2, Simba's Pride. They also wrote the Buzz Lightyear Star Command, The Adventure Begins. Also, Lady of the Tramp 2, Scamp's Adventures, Tarzan and Jane, and Mickey's Twice Upon a Christmas. And in addition to the video premieres, they also wrote episodes of Aladdin the Animated Series, Marsupilami, Quack Pack, Hercules, Buzz Lightyear of Star Command, Disney's Legend of Tarzan's, Kim Possible, Brandy and Miss Squishers. I had completely forgotten about that show. Plus, Emperor's New School and Phineas and Ferb. This is what happens when Jim spends too much time on IMDb. He just <laughs> starts listing... Projects. I, well, I mean, I do, the point I'm trying to make here is these are two guys who spent years working on other people's shows and working with characters that other people created. So if anybody has earned a shot at doing their own show with their own characters, it's Bill and Bob. And they recently got that opportunity on the Disney Channel with the October 1st debut 
of the ghost and Molly McGee. And you've been thumping the tub for this this show for a while. Yeah, I mean, the animation is so beautiful by our friends at Mercury Filmworks. It's just great. And you finally watched it. I did. I did. Well, again, it's two days out from Halloween. So let me hang out with a ghost. And so last night... I caught up on the five episodes that are available. You were pointing out that these are currently available on Disney Plus, right? Yes. I think that the something like the 10th episode is actually running tomorrow morning Mm. on on the Disney channels. And I think there's a way of getting them through some apps, too. But I, I really like the idea that they are putting them on Disney Plus early. It used to be that you'd have to wait until the whole season. Now they're kind of dumping them in five episode chunks it's really it's really nice no oh, I, I agree. love that i agree okay so the really funny show with some amazing animation again from the talented folks of mercury but also some really sharp writing and title characters are scratch who is voiced by danish snyder of aqua teen hunger force fame uh, he voiced master shake on that adult swim show the premise is scratch is this grumpy old ghost who lives up in the attic of this house that Molly Beagie's family moves into. And Molly, who's this incredibly optimistic tween girl of Thai and Scottish descent, she's voiced by Ashley Birch, who recently voiced Enid on OKKO, Let's Be Heroes, the Cartoon Network show that my daughter Alice and I really, really loved and still miss. But anyway, Scratch wants Molly and her family to get out of his house, so he curses this little 13-year-old girl. Only the curse somehow backfires, and now he's forced to basically stick by Molly's side. And I think it's a really well-worn show. There's a lot of jokes that mom and dad, as they're sitting back on the couch, will enjoy. They've brought in a lot of fun actors to play different roles. I think the last one I watched last night brought in Kelsey Grammer as the voice of Abraham Lincoln. And earlier, they actually brought in the really for real Gerda Gerwig, the director of Lady Bird and Little Women, to play herself. I hope that someone at Disney is smart enough to copyright Gig Pig, the temporary job finding app that they talk about on the show, because if not, somebody's going to steal that. It's coupled with some really funny songs. And after all those years... Mots and Roth have put in working on uh, with other people's characters and on other people's shows. The effort is clearly paid off. They are now masters of the animated series form and can tell good, solid, funny stories in just 11 minutes. Molly McGee, the show is typically 22 minutes long. It's it's two 11-minute episodes per show, but sometimes the two episodes uh, tell one continuous story. I think it's episode three where they starts off with getting the band shell back together and then the greatest concert ever. But like Mm -hmm. I said, great show to have been watching around Halloween. But to be honest, The Ghost and Molly McGee would be entertaining any time of year. So please check it out. And you know what else I saw, Jim, that you ignored on my email, but I'm going to say it anyway. Mm-hmm. I saw Olaf Presents. The, oh, um, I'm sorry. I was waiting for you to say you'd gotten permission to talk about that. Yes, I think I think I can talk about it. It'll be fine. Who listens to this show, really, Jim? <laughs> That's a threat. <laughs> That's a threat and also trying to drum up interest in the show. Yeah, um, so, I, you know, they're two-minute episodes. Okay. They are our good friend of the show, Josh Gad's Olaf, sort of recounting um, the plot of these movies. And I, we, we got to give a shout out to Ava. I think she had some trouble at school this week. So we want to say <laughs> shout out to Ava. Okay. Ava rules. And if anybody bullies her, they're going to have two people to deal with right here. That's right. I will bring ugly cake. It won't be pretty. So, yes. All right. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, it is very, very funny. It's hard, you know, I don't want to give anything away because they're so short mm-hmm. and uh, they're so delightful. But any fan of Disney animation or Olaf will really appreciate both the kind of technical wizardry of kind of recycling characters and uh, sets and things from the other movies and also just the humor that Josh brings to the character and and all the wonderful character animation. So I think you will... If you wanted to see Marshmallow mm-hmm. play the Cave of Wonders, this is this is for you. Oh, no! Yeah. <laughs> all right. You had me just him recapping the movies, but now Marshmallow is the Cave of Wonders. I'm there. Oh, yes. my God. Okay. We were also, just a few minutes ago, talking about Adult Swim, and you came across the trailer for... The 13th season of Squidbillies? Yeah. Wow. I think it's like one of the longest running Adult Swim shows. Mm -hmm. I think the show is very funny. It's absolutely absurd. And yeah, it's coming next week to Adult Swim, I think on the 12th. So yeah, if we need more Dana Snyder content, there you go. Isn't he on that too? Didn't he do the grandma or? Yes. Okay. (laughs) You also came across a very brief Wendell and Wild trailer. Yeah, so it was this really cool kind of like, it started out as sort of a live video of a boombox playing, and you just see a very, very brief glimpse of Wendell and Wild, who are voiced by uh, Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele. Mm-hmm. And Jordan Peele co-wrote this movie with the great Henry Selleck, who is directing, and this is his first feature since Coraline in 2009. And... I think we've gone over the Shadow King debacle on here before, but it's just good to see some some Henry Selleck weirdness uh, right before Halloween. There were five, six different clips of work-in-progress stuff for the Shadow King that kind of bubbled up online. Do you ever look at those? Or Yeah, I mean, they were pretty finished, those scenes. Uh, um, yeah, it looked really impressive. It did, it did. I love me some stop motion, so the fact that we're getting anything new from Henry Selleck makes me happy. But speaking of stop motion, and I think you mentioned that this documentary was actually out there, but a a fine-tuning fan reached out via Twitter to make us aware of Clay Dreams, which I think you pointed out debuted at Tribeca back in June? Yeah, I mean, things that debut at Tribeca have a hard road to hoe. Well, especially um, during the pandemic, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but we would love to see this because it's the it's the story of Will Vinton, right, and his animation studio that gave us the raised California raisins. I think is one that everybody knows. Yeah, but at the same time, if you're a Disney fan and the five of us who actually went to theaters to see Return to Oz, I mean, the gnomes in you know the gnome king's lair across a deadly desert. I mean, there are kids who are still working that out one out in therapy. Likewise, those of us who who went to theaters to see. Vinton's feature, The Adventures of Mark Twain. What I considered so ballsy about that movie is that Will went after both sides of Mark Twain's nature. In fact, after he's lost his wife, Livy, and I'm blanking the name of his his other daughter, who I think drowned in a in a bathtub after they, they believe she had a, an episode of epilepsy, Twain went really, really dark. And what's interesting about The Adventures of Mark Twain is that you get both flavors of Mark Twain. You get the guy who wrote the story of Huckleberry Finn and The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and 
then the dark Mark Twain who who wrote Hadleyville and, and Captain Stormfield and but both of those are well worth looking at. You know what my favorite Will Vinton thing was as a kid? What? Dinosaurs: A Fun-Filled Trip Back in Time. <laughs> Do you remember this? Is this the one that actually features the Ebert and Siskel send-up dinosaurs? Or yes, okay. yes. All right. I think there's only like it's a it's like a thirty-minute special, but I think there's like eighteen minutes of stop motion. But it's very cool. I don't know. I don't know how you find it now. It's probably on YouTube. But Fred Savage plays a kid who doesn't want to learn about dinosaurs, and hmm. then he gets exposed to these crazy dinosaurs. But there's a really fun song. I think that the the stop motion stuff was directed by Wilvin too, so mm. it's okay. it's really really cool. I really like that a lot, but that was my favorite th- Wilvinton thing growing up. So I just wanted to throw that out there as a dinosaur obsessed kid. There you go. Something else to, to chase down on YouTube, but anyway, Clay Dream is directed by Mark Evans, and that's Mark with a Q. And we should definitely try to a trick chase this film down and. See if we could get Mark on the show, get him to talk about yeah. it. Because he did, supposedly he sits down with folks like Bill Plimpton. That alone, you know, animation professionals talking about Will Venton. I, I, I got to say this. But anyway, uh, we were just talking about some of the scarier stuff that, that Will Venton did. When Drew and I get back, we'll talk about some monsters, to be specific, Mike and Sully, and the 20th anniversary of Monsters, Inc. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When did Monsters, Inc. first come on your radar? Well, I was obsessed with Pixar at the time, obviously, and was following this very, very closely. Because I think this was the first movie since Bugs Life, mm-hmm. right? Or what was be- what was before this? Oh, no, it was Toy Story 2. Toy Story was 2. was in 99. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But it had been a while. It had been a while. Yeah, we didn't have anything in 2000. So, yeah, I was, I was very much looking forward to this one. I mm-hmm. think there was a trailer on Dinosaur, I want to say, in the summer of 2000. So... I was ready, Jim. This was the one where, isn't it Mike and Sully come into a kid's bedroom and Mike's got the paperwork and there was supposed to be some play on Magnolia and, and, and Sully looks at the paper that's Mongolia. That says Mongolia. And <laughs> Sully turns around and goes back and hopes that there's still donuts left in the break room. And that's when you yes. just hear the grout, the dog growling off. Sometimes the very best tra- teaser trailers don't have anything to do with the movie. That just set up the world and the characters and the way they interacted. That sometimes can backfire. I think I was talking earlier this week when people talk about Lightyear. Do you remember the very first Frozen trailer where it was just Sven and Olaf battling over his carrot nose? Yes. And yes. the online community immediately fell on Frozen like wolves and, oh, this movie looks stupid and it won't make any money and blah, 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 blah. Then, of course, it makes a billion dollars. But even when we got into the really for real trailer for the movie, didn't they also hide that it was was a musical? Yes. I don't think there was any music in any of the marketing materials, which I'm sort of like, yeah, but how do you how do you really put a snippet of a song in there? I mean, I'm sympathetic to that. And obviously, 
it won people over. It became the biggest animated movie of all time. So it did. They it, knew what they were doing. Yeah. It did. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, to get back to Monsters, Inc., that first teaser drill comes out that sort of introduces us to Mike and Sully. And so here's this movie in the fall of 2021 getting ready to be released to theaters. And there's all of this concern because after 9-11, after that, something that was equally scary, there was this spat of envelopes filled with anthrax being yeah. sent around. Which they still have it. They still aren't totally sure who did that, which yep. is another creepy mm-hmm. aspect of it. I think that it was, an, it was a government employee, but yeah. No uh, care. Okay. Everybody was very up in arms about that. So here's Monsters, Inc., getting ready to be released to theaters. And a big element of that film, of course, is the child detection agency in their hazmat suits. And all over the news are these envelopes being delivered with anthrax. And then you see the footage of the people in their hazmat suits going into places. Didn't one envelope get sent to ABC News? Yeah. Yeah. At Disney and Pixar, it's like, do we really want to put out a movie that features the hazmat suits? And... In the end, it came right up to the edge, and it's like, oh, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Just just put it out there. This is a movie that went through lots of iterations. I got privy to how many iterations because I actually got reached out to by somebody who was suing Pixar because they were claiming they had come up with the original story for Monsters, oh, Inc., boy. And they wanted me as an expert witness, which which tells you how good their chances were in court. (laughs) You know, it's like, you know who's going to save us? Jim Hill. That's who we want to be associated with. But yeah, I mean, as part of the discovery phase of the trial, I got sent an envelope from the attorney working on this thing. It must have been two and three inches thick with like 15 different iterations of the storyline for Monsters, Inc., and very early on, the, the idea here wasn't that Screams powered Monstropolis, but, but Screams were entertaining, that the folks who lived in Monstropolis would literally, it's 8 o'clock, get in front of the television, and you get to watch the great Barrymore as he goes into children's bedrooms and frightens them. And the shows that delivered the best scares were the ones that got the highest ratings. And by the way, this was sort of modeled after 50s television the design conceit was sort of like, you know, here's the, the television industry in the early days when it's still based out in New York. And so here's a janitor who's working at the theater that they do the broadcast out of. And he wants to break in and Barry Mauer is very dismissive of him. And through various machinations, the janitor character goes into the human world and brings a 10-year-old girl back with him. And the two of them conspire that they're going to stage really over-the-top scares. And so he can, the janitor can then become a star as big, if not bigger, than Barrymore. It's an interesting idea, and, and they spent a couple of years sort of developing it, but they eventually realized that this doesn't quite work, and this is when things kind of mutate to the whole scares for energy thing. But they still keep the kind of the sad sack protagonist Only he goes from being a janitor to now he's a guy who's working on the loading docks at Monsters Incorporated. And he's so low on the the totem pole that he's actually bullied. Do you remember the characters Needleman and Smitty? Oh, of course, Jim. (laughs) As a a young pimple-faced man, I (laughs) identified with them. He's so amazing. 
Those two are the ones who are bullying the hero. And at this point, Mike Wazowski is working with Randall. And this is the earlier version of Mike Wazowski where he doesn't have arms. He just has the two feet, but which he doubles his arms. So when you were first paying attention to this movie, Drew... Was this when John Cusack was still voicing Sully? Or? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, there were some pretty regular reports coming out about this was when Pixar was, had, did not have quite the lid of secrecy that it does now. Um, and just as, you know, famously Billy Crystal turned down uh, Toy Story, uh, we have another another fascinating Pixar casting what if, which, you know, we've we, we could do a whole show about people who were actually cast in Pixar movies, which didn't end up being the case. Most recently, I think Elizabeth Banks in uh, Inside Out as Joy. Yeah. Yeah. Or Bill Macy as... Uh, Bill Macy as Marlon. Yeah, yeah. Marlin. yeah. Yeah. And also, I remember going to VES for their Monsters, Inc. presentation, and they showed this earlier sad sack version of Sully and the animation test that they'd done. At this point... He has four legs, but they're octopus-like legs. And, I mean, they were miles down the road of having built this rig. Because, again, the notion was he's a monster. He's got to look like a monster. So they were heavily invested in this. You know, he, he was walking upright with two arms, but four octopus legs. Did you ever hear the story about how they still kept Boo as, like, the 10-year-old girl, but in order to add a... A new wrinkle on the story, she's Gaelic? No. So the entire time she's speaking Gaelic to Sully, and he doesn't understand it because monsters only speak English for some reason, and that just seems like it's a, such a weird road to go down. But they spent a lot of time working on that version of it, and and they were married to that one for so long because they loved how the finale was going to po- play out, that there was this moment where... Uh, Randall is just beating the crap out of Sully. And you see Boo, and she's terrified. So she runs through the door back into the human world. And you think she's abandoned Sully, and the fight goes on for another 30 seconds or so, and then the door gets thrown open again, and it's Boo with her eight brothers, who are all these, <laughs> these hulking brute, and who proceed to beat the crap out of Randall. And they loved that story. They loved that story moment. But it was just one of these things where in the end, it's like, this chunk works. But we can't make the rest of Boo work as a 10-year-old Gaelic girl. And in the end, that's how we wound up with Boo as a toddler, and but still keeping the incomprehensible language thing because she's a baby and she only speaks a couple of words or gibberish or that sort of thing. Right. The other thing, frankly, the whole notion of Sully is a sad sack. It was one of these things where I remember talking with somebody at Pixar who basically said, we were asking the audience to sympathize with two characters. And that's a big ask. And whereas when you had Boo, you had this little girl, you were, you know, your sympathies automatically went to her because she's, she's away from the human world. She's away from her family. Uh, You want to get her back, so you're immediately in her corner. And the beauty of having her as the thing that drove drove the story was you got to watch Sully go from, oh my God, I'm terrified of the human girl, to coming to care for her, to becoming her protector. And that made you, as an audience member, that put you in Sully's corner. 
But at the same time, as they're getting uh, moving through the the you know the, the final stages of production, they they kept getting tripped up by stupid things like in every screening, in every single screening of Monsters Inc. that they did, the moment where Mike and Sully are walking to the factory in the morning and they come up to the corner and there's Godzilla standing there, and here's. Sully making small talk with Godzilla. Hank, I think they call him. What are, I forget the, how they refer to Godzilla. Oh, the big, like, chicken yeah. guy? Who, yeah. No, well, no, yeah. that's it exactly. That, that It always got this huge laugh in, in the test screen because you would hear Godzilla's distinctive roar as Sully's making small talk with him. And in the end, you know, in much the same way that the first Toy Story movie, Mattel regretted not giving them the rights to use Barbie in that movie. Toho said, no, 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 Godzilla's, you know, one of our biggest stars. We're not going to give it to you guys for a one knockoff gag thing, which was weird because this is kind of in that same window of time where they're they're working on Godzilla-based attractions for the park. And it's like, what happened there? You guys were in agreement on the Creature's Choice Award show that Kevin Rafferty was writing for the studios. It's like you couldn't get them to agree as part of that deal to allow Godzilla to roar in Monsters, Inc. But anyway, that gets cut. And so let's talk about the tail end of this movie, which I think this is the first moment where I I thought that Pete Docter is a filmmaker I really want to pay attention to for going forward. Because anybody else, when it came to the moment where Sully and Boo reunited, they would have pumped it they would have had Boo run into Sully's arm and the camera would have whipped around the room and there would have been a a big swelling cord and, you know, and that's how the movie would end. And the fact that it's done a little tight close-up and, you you know, see Sully's nervous face and and you have Boo off camera say kitty and you just get that sweet smile on Sully's face and that's how you end the movie? That level of control... That's somebody who trusts his material, that trusts the audience, and it's also the end of, of City Lights, <laughs> you know, the, the Chaplin movie. But, you know, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. But <laughs> what about you, Drew? If, if you're looking back on, on Monsters, Inc., what are your favorite stories associated with this one? Or, or Well, I, I'm just fascinated by the design process. You, you mentioned the um, version of Sully with the squid legs, mm-hmm. and there was this, for a while, this ethos that the monsters couldn't be men in suits Mm -hmm. like the shape and design of them you could not put a person in that suit in a live action movie and have it be a monster Mm -hmm. so that is why i mean you look at versions of mike too where he doesn't have any arms Mm -hmm. he's just the orb with the legs and he's doing he's you know reaching out with his legs Mm -hmm. and it you know it's very odd and obviously they kind of backed away from that but you know, just the the sheer amount of design work that went into that and figuring out the world. And, you know, you look at the book, the Art Up book, or, you, you know, at the MoMA, seeing that exhibit and just seeing the amount of drawings they had and Sully with a top hat. And, you know, it's like, oh, my God. And, and the fact that all of that development, too, sort of led to Finding Nemo being kind of a low-budget Pixar movie because... They had spent all this money on Monsters, Inc. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Right? Yeah. And then, of course, <laughs> if you talk with anybody at Pixar, you know, all, all they'll talk about <laughs> when it comes to Finding Nemo is, oh, God, the particulate matter. 
just to make water look like real water, you know, and, and the diffusion right. and the light issues. And, and how many bubbles. Oh, and yeah. 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 No, you're right. You're right. I'm just fascinated by that. I, the movie turned out so well, and it I'm did. actually a big Monsters University fan, too, so I think underrated. Unless or so, I have to say, though, if you stick the ending, I'm willing to overlook a lot, and Monsters Inc. has a great ending. It just clicks in nicely with everything we know, and has a nice message and all that. Uh, speaking of Monsters-related you know, follow-ups and that sort of thing, we, we need to touch base on Monsters at Work, which just ended over at Disney+. Plus. And by the way, we were just talking about Bob Roth and Bill Motz and Robert Scully and Mark McCorkle, and it's important to point out that Monsters at Work was done by Bob Zganaway, who did, I mean, Disney television animation things like uh, Timon and Pumbaa, the animated series, uh, 101 Dalmatians, the animated series, House of Mouse, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, Lilo and Stitch, the series. And that's the thing. On the television side, they have this deep, deep bench of people that they're still using for shows that are still doing great stuff. And Speaking of a deep bench, let's talk about this week's Light Diffuse. What do you got coming? Well, this week I think we're wrapping up uh, our conversation with the associate producer uh, of um, Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation. And then we're starting, we talked to Chris Peck, who was the prop master for Ghost Protocol and has some amazing stories. And he, he worked on Tomorrowland with Brad Bird, so he, you know... He got to work with Sid Mead on both of those projects, which Holy is pretty cow. awesome. And he kind of walks us through all the amazing props from Ghost Protocol. And then we're we're talking today. As soon as I get off this call, uh, we talked to Anthony Giacchino, Michael's brother, who did the behind-the-scenes footage for uh, Ghost Protocol. And it's sort of part of our big anniversary, 10th anniversary of Ghost Protocol stuff that is coming out mm, uh, that sounds... this month and into next month. So, yeah. That sounds great. Tell you what, folks, if you could do Drew and I a favor, if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and recommend fine-tuning, but also Drew's terrific uh, Light Diffuse, and you could head over to Bandcamp and subscribe. Drew, could you tell folks how they could find you on social media? Sure. I am uh, Drew Tailored, like a tailored shirt, on Instagram and Twitter. And yeah, I'm always tweeting about something, and I'm sharing my articles, too, so... If you have trouble finding those, um, yeah, a lot of discussion about the Runaway Brain article on there. Deservedly. It was a great piece. And and more to the point, the thing you wrote just this week for the wrap about Lightyear is, is well worth checking out as well. So speaking of social media, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media and over on Facebook at Jim Hill Media News. That's going to do it for this week. Thanks for listening, folks. And Drew and I will be back with a brand new episode of Fine Tuning next week. Till then, take care.